0: Many children with upper limb deficiency, including congenital and acquired loss, grow up facing various functional and social challenges. Interventions for children with upper limb difference are guided by the presentation of the limb, as well as resources and availability of support. Because of the rarity of this condition sparseness of specially trained clinicians globally, many prosthetists and therapists find it difficult to know how to best support their clients. Therefore, to best provide assistance for clinicians who treat children with upper limb differences, we must first understand the interventions and the issues faced by children in different countries around the world. Hi everyone, I'd like to welcome you to episode 20 of OMP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodontics and Prosthetists. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guest today is Ms. Wendy Hill, Ms. Hill is a research occupational therapist working with the Atlantic Clinic for Upper Limb Prosthetics in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which specializes in upper limb myoelectric fittings and provides service to clients of all ages from all over Atlantic Canada. The Lynn Clinic is housed within the Institute of Biomedical Engineering at the University of New Brunswick, where Ms. Hill is involved in many research projects in the areas of upper limb motion analysis, outcome measures, and prosthetic hand control. She is an honorary research associate with the faculty of kinesiology at UNB. She's a North American instructor for the assessment of capacity for myoelectric control assessment, which is a functional outcome measure for myoelectric control. And she's been co-chair of the myoelectric control or MEC symposium since 2005. Today, we will be discussing a recent article that Ms. Hill published in JPO entitled Treatment for Children with Upper Limb Differences in Various Parts of the World, Preliminary Findings. Welcome to the podcast, Wendy.
1: Thank you, Dr. Gard. I'm very excited to be here today.
0: Well, I'm very excited to have you on our podcast, and I'd like to jump right in and discussing your article and would like to know why does this topic interest you?
1: Well, I am primarily a clinician, and almost half of the caseload of people that I see are children who have been born with limb loss. So this topic area interests me, and I feel like my position within this clinic, in this institute, is a little bit of a unicorn, and not not everyone gets to work in a facility like I do, where I I work directly with the prosthetist, side by side, and, and we see all of our clients together. So I was very interested to know how other people treat children, what that looks like in other parts of not only Canada, but in other parts of the world. So that's really where this started.
0: So what was the purpose of your study?
1: The purpose really was to look at and describe how children are treated what that looks like in the developed part of the world as well as in the developing countries and how that might be different than what I know of from my contacts and my experience with children and other clinicians in North America.
0: So what were your expectations for this study? Or in other words, what did you expect to find by gathering this information?
1: I guess my co-author, Dr. Lot Hermanson and I Both kind of expected that prosthetic services would be less available, maybe in the developing parts of the world, and that there would be probably less support for funding in certain countries, and probably, especially in the developed part of the world, that there would be agreement on prosthetic fitting practices for what and when to fit children.
0: Very nice. So let's move on to the methods. What were your inclusion-exclusion criteria for your research participants?
1: Basically, we wanted to access as many English-speaking clinicians as we could from as many countries as we could access who were working with this population. So that we, we really only wanted to talk to people who had experience in working with upper limb loss or upper limb difference.
0: Uh, Specifically in children, is that correct?
1: Not necessarily. We thought that would be too narrow a search. So we thought in some of the developing countries that any experience in working with adults or children with limb loss would give some insight into what the practices are for children in those countries.
0: Okay. So how did you go about collecting data?
1: So I was a part of the HandSmart group which is a group that was founded in 2016 of experienced clinicians from various parts of the world who work with upper limb loss. And we used that as our primary contact source and asked all of our, our members to send the survey out to all of their contacts of people that they knew in various parts of the world. And then we used a snowball sampling method where We asked anybody who accessed the survey and answered the survey to also send that survey to anyone else they knew who it would be relevant to.
0: And so what type of data did you collect from the participants?
1: So we designed the survey using Lime Survey, an online survey platform, and we asked questions, demographic information about the respondents. But the questions, what we were getting at for information was really looking at what professionals were involved in the treatment of children, what the prosthetic practice is for fitting children, what types of prostheses they were fit with at what ages, how prostheses are funded, what would happen in the case of someone who was not fit with a prosthesis or they continued to be followed and in what manner and, and in what format. Was there training involved in the prescription of a prosthetic device and who was involved in that training? And also, we wanted to know if there were common problems socially or functionally among the children who were being seen, whether or not they used a prosthesis.
0: And how many subjects responded to your survey?
1: We had 68 respondents from 18 different countries. So we were quite pleased with that.
0: And what were the demographics of your participants? Or in other words, who were the participants in this survey?
1: The majority of the respondents were occupational therapists, as well as prosthetists. Many saw actually probably 68 or 69% of the respondents were seeing more than five people per year who had upper limb loss. And the majority of people had more than five years of experience in working with that population.
0: So you had a good mix of respondents and uh, an excellent number that responded to the survey, which is wonderful. What were some of the primary findings of your investigation?
1: One of the interesting results from this survey was that the respondents gave several reasons why a prosthesis may not be considered. And the most frequent response for that was a cognitive challenge. 48% of people actually responded that a cognitive challenge would mean that they would not fit a prosthesis to a child. That was interesting to me because cognitive deficits are not a common result of upper limb difference or upper limb loss. So we weren't sure if people misinterpreted that response option or possibly that they weren't aware of what the cognitive challenges or what the issues are in fitting a very young child with a prosthesis. That obviously the level of understanding of a young child is very different than someone who is an older child, say at age four or five or six. So, you know, in identifying a cognitive challenge, it could really just be related to age. So it was something that we, we wondered about when we looked at that result.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Whenever I read through your article, that was something that really stuck out to me Mm -hmm. was that some of the respondents may have misinterpreted cognitive issues or challenges to be just a very young age where you can't really explain things to the child and have them understand. Right.
1: Right. And that leads to some of the issues around education and experience of the team working with these children. So if you're not familiar with children and in the majority of prosthetic clinics, if they're not upper limb specialty clinics, then they're seeing a variety of ages and types of limb loss. And so if you don't only see children, you don't know how to treat a a one-year-old and how to fit that one-year-old within myoelectric prosthesis and training that child is very different than it would be training an adolescent or training an an adult to use uh, prosthesis. And so if you have a clinic, again, that doesn't have an occupational therapist directly associated with them, then those challenges become even worse, harder. And you're kind of touching on
0: another area that I wanted to uh, ask you a question about, and that is one of the aspects of your study that I really liked and appreciated was regarding the importance of the multidisciplinary team approach in treating children with upper limb difference. So I wondered if you could comment on this point.
1: So I believe a multidisciplinary team is crucial for any clinic, anybody who is going to fit children with a prosthesis or follow children who have upper limb loss. We all bring different perspectives and different skills to a team. So myself as the occupational therapist, I have a different mindset and different skills when it comes to training and treating children. So working directly with the prosthetist who also brings other skills into play and knows how best to capture that limb and to fit that child with a device that's going to work for them. I think together we can do a better job of meeting the needs of the child and the family. And children's needs change all the time. So, for one of the parts of this process that's important is training the child to use the prosthesis. The OT is able to do that in a way that can relate to their own home environment and their school and their community and ensure that the use of the prosthesis becomes a regular part of their daily life. So, that's important. It's important that the prosthesis fit well that it's appropriate for the activities that the child wants to do. And then the OT can then make sure that it gets integrated into that person's daily life. But again, over time, those things change. The child may go through stages where they don't want to use a certain type of prosthesis or they want to get involved in a different sport that requires a different type of attachment or terminal device. Those things, you need to be closely following and monitoring that child over time in order to accommodate for these changes in function and their changes in, in needs.
0: Excellent perspective. Yeah. And again, I, I think a multidisciplinary team approach is essential for a successful outcome in this case. No question about it. Absolutely. So, do you feel that your findings support or refute findings of previous studies of this type?
1: I think our findings support what's in the literature currently, especially for fitting practices and when and what should be fit to children at various ages. I think it gives a little bit more rich information about that particular topic. And the other things that we touched on in this survey, I haven't found in the literature before. So the issues of where funding comes from in different countries, I haven't read that in other studies. So I, I think that adds to the literature. And there are other things that we touched on with the functional and social issues for children that I, I haven't read specific information about those. Although there is literature to support that these issues exist. We went into a little bit more depth, I think, in this survey than what I read in the literature.
0: Were there any unanticipated surprises in your findings?
1: I think, as we said a little bit earlier, the cognitive issues being a concern for fitting, that was a surprise to us as well. I was surprised that there were as many funding options in some countries, especially in some of the developing countries. I was quite surprised that there were funding options at all. There were actually charitable options in most countries that I wasn't aware of. And I was a little bit surprised actually among the responses within countries. So in some of the countries where there were six or eight or nine respondents, there was sometimes lack of agreement about how and when kids should be fit and whether there was a policy in place for when they should move from one type of prosthesis to another, that was a surprise to me. I I really did expect that within countries there would be more agreement of how that should work.
0: Yeah, that is a little surprising. In fact, I was wondering if the developed countries didn't tend to respond more consistently than the developing countries. Or was there kind of uniformity in responses between developed and uh, developing countries, but you seem to be indicating that, no, it wasn't consistent from one country to another or even within countries?
1: Within countries, exactly. But I would say that was the case, and it was a bit surprising. So that just shows me, and actually, I, I know this from my own country, and even within Atlantic Canada, for example, that there isn't consistency in how children are treated. And that goes back to one of the the motivations for doing this survey in the first place is I know that children are seen in, in other parts of Canada, and there are some clinics that don't believe that children should be fit with a breast thesis, you know, that they function, Absolutely fine whether they use a press basis or they don't. And for places that don't continue to follow children long term and see the effects of not using a prosthesis or, you know, compensating with other body parts over time, there's a higher rate of repetitive strain injuries and other issues that occur as these children age. So, you know, we believe that fitting of a press basis is important. It gives the child experience and exposure to using a prosthesis at an early age. They develop skill in using that prosthesis. It it helps with their body image and their ability to recognize midline when they're learning fine motor skills and developing their gross motor skills. So our philosophy, I guess, is a little bit different, but we also are are a specialty upper limb clinic. And so I think our perspective is maybe a little bit different than other clinics that don't have a dedicated multidisciplinary team.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's good insight to know. Did you encounter any notable problems in the course of your study? And if so, what would you have done differently?
1: So we realized after we started getting responses that sometimes they were a little slow coming in. We realized that the fact that our survey, even though we thought it was available in different languages and would translate for people, it really wasn't. And so that language issue, we believe might have been the reason why we didn't get more responses from clinicians in other parts of the world, because they really had to be comfortable functioning in English in order to respond to this survey. And even to understand the context of what we were getting at in our questions I'm not sure would have translated exactly right if they were trying to access that in a different language. So that was a concern and also the question about functional or social problems for children we realized after the fact, we should have realized this earlier on, that we were asking clinicians about their idea of whether these children experience these particular problems and it's hard to know whether those problems are actually the same for the person who is experiencing them. So I feel like I have some understanding of what the children that I see go through, but I don't live their lives and I can't answer for them. And so I really do think for us to explore that more, we should really be asking the children and, and their parents to answer those questions.
0: I agree. That would be an interesting aspect and set of data to collect to go along with the clinician's responses as well. Yeah. So for the benefit of the therapists and the prosthetists and other clinicians listening to this podcast, what are the main clinical takeaways of your study?
1: I would say primarily, and this is probably repeating myself, that a multidisciplinary team obviously is a critical When you're dealing with children. And I do think that regular and long term follow up is very important with this population.
0: And do you have any recommendations for future research directions based on your work?
1: Well, as we were just commenting on with the idea of exploring functional and social problems of children, I really do think that a study looking at comparing the responses of children, their parents, and the clinicians who treat them would be very interesting and might help us to, to better support them in those issues clinically and also in their communities.
0: I agree. That makes a lot of sense. And finally, I'd like to conclude by asking our guests, would you like to acknowledge any funding you received to conduct this study?
1: We did not receive any funding to do this study specifically, although because we were part of this HandSmart group and that's really where this study was initiated, HandSmart was supported by Prosthetica and by Autobach. So for the funding for our website and for hosting that information came from those two companies.
0: Very nice. Well, well done study, Wendy. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, and uh, it was very interesting to learn more about your work.
1: Thank you very much.
0: We've come to the end of our podcast, so I would like to thank Ms. Hill for sharing her insights and discussing her research with us today. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on this project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of ONP Research Insights presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Procitus. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's ONP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for ONP professionals, ONP Clinical Insiders, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care, and ONP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our industry.